Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder. On this week's episode, we're going to visit with the two Libertarian candidates for governor. This is the first year that the Libertarians are on the governor ballot in Oklahoma, and after a runoff, there are two candidates, or after a primary, there are two candidates that are headed to the August 28th runoff. Now, this interview with uh, both Chris Powell and Rex Lawhorn was recorded on July 13th, so that was a week ago. Events may have changed since then. Uh, that may be why we're not asking them a question of something that blew up in the political sphere. Um, but here is that interview with the two Libertarian candidates for Oklahoma governor. Well, this is the first year for the Libertarian Party to appear on an Oklahoma ballot for governor, and the state has nearly 5,000 registered Libertarians across the state. And joining me are the two candidates still left on the ballot running for governor on the Libertarian Party, winning last month, or advancing past last month's uh, primary onto August's runoff, and that is uh, Chris Powell and Rex Lawhorn. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks Glad for having us. Well, I'm going to start with this question, which even though we have a really politically focused audience that's watching and listening every week, I imagine there's still quite a few people um, who aren't really sure, uh, you know, about the Libertarian Party in terms of, uh, you know, what makes a Libertarian. So I figured let's just jump off and, and give you guys a chance to introduce yourselves as well. Simple question. What's a Libertarian? A Libertarian is somebody who believes in individual liberty and that the government's role is to protect individual liberty across the board. That's for everybody. We're not trying to protect this group or that group. We're trying to protect the rights of every single Oklahoman. Yeah. The biggest difficulty that people in Oklahoma have in understanding the difference is because of the fact that they are used to a left-right political spectrum. You either deal with conservative issues, uh, fiscal conservatism, or you deal with social issues. You want to be socially liberal. Um, libertarians pretty much ignore that left-right spectrum because we're more concerned with the top-bottom spectrum to where you have the majority of state control or you have the majority of individual liberty. Um, we have always felt, and it's been proven time and time again throughout history, that the smallest majority is the individual and that the conglomeration actions of the individuals have always been more effective than concentrating power in a small number of hands. So when you have a hundred people at the state capitol trying to solve a problem for 4.1 million people, the 4.1 million people are going to have better success for that's going to be more efficient and they're yeah. going to have more success in getting it done. Well and you know obviously it's so much focus is put on you know red and blue, you know, left and right, and but there, there seems to be a, a growing cry for that kind of third alternative for some that's, uh, you know, just being an independent. Um, but the Libertarian Party has kind of seen a, a spike in attention of, of recent years at the national level and then, and obviously here in Oklahoma. Um, let me ask you this, and, and probably should have started this one with, but tell me a little about each of yourself, why you're running for governor, uh, your backstory a little bit, and uh, just introducing yourself to, to voters. Well, I joined the Libertarian Party in 2000, and uh, so I've been doing this for a while. I served a term as state chairman. Uh, I've run for office before uh, with uh, comparatively good success in doing that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Oklahoman, and these are really core values of individual liberty, uh, self-reliance, helping your neighbor, not because somebody makes you do it, but because you want to, you know, the, the really the best parts of the Oklahoma standard are libertarianism. So that's really what we're about. And as far as me personally, I think this is, this year is, has, I saw it as shaping up as a tremendous opportunity for us to grow the party, get our message out there, let people know they have this option rather than the two establishment parties who have been doing all these things that 
all of us don't like and have generated such anger and frustration in the in among the voters so uh, taking advantage of that opportunity and trying to put our best foot forward for November is what what I'm trying to do yeah and Chris is exactly right uh, Oklahoma is the prime state for the libertarian movement to take the strongest foothold all of the core values everything from its history to the composition of its people today is what makes Oklahoma a libertarian state you know a lot of people are taking to calling us you know the third party the alternative but that's not the case at all because honestly in November when we get here there's going to be two Democrats and a libertarian on the ballot so we aren't the third alternative we are the second party we give you the option of being able to control your own life control your own liberty as opposed to turning everything over to state control. Well, I have uh, to, I'm going to ask you to explain that, that statement a little bit there. So to, you're, you mean by two Democrats, obviously there's a Republican and a Democrat, but you know, what, what do you mean by that? Well, sure. If you look at the policies that, for instance, let's just talk about Mick, uh, mayor here of Oklahoma City, and Drew Edmondson, who is going to be, who is the Democrat nominee, and you look at their policies and you put them down side by side and you read them, you wouldn't be able to tell which one of them was from which party as far as what they've done and what they have said that they were going to do through their campaign promises. So, so Mick Cornett is one of the two Republicans left. Do you, I mean, right. you, you feel like he's got an edge over Kevin Stitt? I mean, I, I don't want to get... I think that Kevin's probably got a little bit of an edge okay. right now, um, but I am never going to count the name recognition and the person who has the established history in Oklahoma politics from being out of it. It's how we got Mary Fallon, the fact that she was just a mainstay forever. Everybody knew she was going to be a disaster, and they voted for her and gave her the shot anyway because she's been around forever. Um, the devil you know sort of thing. Yeah. Well, Ms. Powell, do you, do you kind of agree with that, that, that you guys are positioned or you are positioned to uh, you know, capture a lot of those conservative voters who oh, may not yeah. find a candidate they like? Oh, yeah. There is widespread dissatisfaction among Republicans with the two choices that they have. And that's because the two choices that they have are not the candidates in that primary that were speaking to the core conservative values that so many uh, activist Republicans have held for so long. Uh, you've got, you know, Mick Cornett's record has been one of raising taxes to build these huge product projects, uh, things like the, the Indian Center over there, uh, you know, taking the water from Sardis Lake and bringing it up here for their Olympic rowing and things of that nature. And then you've got Kevin Stitt, who's a businessman, and he's playing the outsider card, but he's really been part of that, uh, even though he hasn't been politically active, he's been part of that political class, and he's going to be from those same uh, business community circles. Uh, all those are the power brokers. And they're all in one tight little group, and they're, the difference between those two gentlemen and Mr. Edmondson uh, is very slim. Yeah, and uh, I just want to clarify one something real quick. You're referring to uh, former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett uh, with the tax increases, the MAPS initiative. So yes. I know that the, yes. the Indian Center, I think that was a state project, but there, I mean, there is some the There's cities definitely involved. definitely city involvement. But definitely everywhere around the city you've seen projects, massive projects, convention centers, a streetcar from this map. So, um, I mean, did you see that? I mean, it was a voter-approved initiative. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, where you see Cornette's policy are, uh, on, on taxes and kind of how you feel like you, you would differ? Well, if he does the same thing uh, as governor that he's done as mayor, it's going to be pushing for tax increases pushing for these big projects that are not core services uh, and you know it, building these these things that are for things other than health and education and uh, you know 
fixing their problems with criminal justice. It's going to be these peripheral things that are not what we need to focus on right now. The biggest problem with our state budget right now is we have too many of those peripherals and we're not funding our core services. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if that's what people vote for, then I, I don't understand why they would do that when we have had year after year after year of uh, failures and frustration and anger over not funding those core services that everybody agrees that we need. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of those specific policy decisions that face a governor. And let's start with what happened this year. We're talking about taxes, so let's stay there. You know, massive tax increase approved by the state legislature to, to mostly fund a teacher pay raise. Um, I mean, that was a, you know, a big point of contentious all, all, all year. The legislature finally did it. The governor signed off on it on this you know, massive uh, you know, historic level of tax increases. I'm curious, specific question. As governor, what would you have done? Whoever wants to take that first. Vetoed it, period. Would have vetoed it. Why? In the conversation. Um, there was an issue that was needing to be addressed. Um, we've known about this issue forever. In February of 2017, when I first made my announcement, education became my top priority. Everything that the OEA was asking for was in my platform, and I was offering it to them without any tax increase whatsoever. Uh, the money already exists in the system. It's undoubted. Everybody knows it now because now they've come out and said we never need to pass it to begin with. Uh, combine that with the fact that it, they were pushing an agenda uh, from Washington, D.C. by a small minority, and they were doing it through dishonest means. They were telling the public that the money didn't exist. They were telling the public that you know, money was the only reason that people were leaving. They were talking about massive underfunding, and they didn't want to look at any alternatives to it. For instance, they were talking about the fact that they were using 1920s, 1940s, 1960s textbooks. Why are they even using textbooks to begin with anymore? Chromebook gives you day-to-day -day updated technology, and over the course of time, giving students Chromebooks is cheaper than supplying them all with multiple textbooks. So, but that's not a conversation that they wanted to have. They created a false dichotomy to say you either get this or get this, and they weren't willing to listen to a third alternative. If either one of us, I feel safe to say even with Chris, if they would have put, had either one of us in the governor's office, this never would have been an issue. The walkout never would have occurred because we would have solved the issue as soon as we got into office. Well, let me ask you, the tax increases on your desk, what do you do? Well, I think uh, with a different person, with one of us in office, it that is not what comes to the governor's desk in the first place. But it, and I want to ask you about that. But I mean, if it had, I mean, if it, it, I mean, would you have vetoed it? I would have strongly considered it because it really doesn't fix the structural problems. It really doesn't do anything to do that. Uh, I would. Uh, you know, it's hard to go back and put yourself in that position, but I would, I would lean toward, toward that. But like I said, it's not going to come to the governor's desk in that form with a libertarian governor. Uh, we're going to talk about how we can get the authority and responsibility away from the capital and back down to the local districts within reach of teachers and parents and empower teachers to run their classrooms rather than continuing to focus everything on the state capitol and this 150 member super school board that we have. Uh, those are not the people who need to be running our classrooms. They, they're not qualified to do it and they don't know the children in those classes. So by having a different, uh, a libertarian in the governor's office, we can talk about how we can get rid of some of this 
crony capitalism spending, like the 450 million plus that we have before the Incentive Evaluation Commission, it's admittedly incentives, that sounds like luxuries to me, we can cut some of that, move that to education if that's what we need to do. We need to, you know, one of the, th the way that they put the t teacher pay raise in place was by raising the, the pay schedule set by the legislature. Most other states, and most other, all of those other states are paying their teachers more than we are, don't even have a teacher pay schedule. The state legislature is not who determines what teachers get paid. It's done by the districts, and it's more of a market situation, and they have those market forces that force them to pay the, the going rate. Here, it's artificially held down by the teacher pay schedule because they have that baseline that they can go to. Uh, so, you know, those kinds of structural changes to put the power and authority back down to the local level within reach of people and, and teachers and students and parents, uh, that's something that we would have talked about rather than this entire focus on what legislators think about what should happen in the classroom. Yeah. Let me ask you another, about another big uh, political storyline right now. And you know, the day that we're taping this is the end of the week of, of which the State Board of Health approved new medical marijuana laws. Uh, legalization of medical marijuana uh, overwhelmingly passed 57% of the voters. Um, the State Board came in and you know, banned the sale of smokable marijuana. Um, you know, a requirement that pharmacy, our pharmacist has to be at each dispensary and a, and a whole lot of other regulations. I'm curious to get your take. Um, what, was your, what were your thoughts when you saw what the Board of Health had done on the issue? And what was your thought of State Question 788 in the first place? Well, obviously, uh, 788 needed to pass. You supported 788? Yes, okay. absolutely. Uh, I, I, very, if there are libertarians that didn't, I haven't met them yet. The, uh, and I was outside of the uh, Department of Health when that uh, decision came down. And what occurred to me is that there are 507,000 people who voted for this. And you know, maybe 7,000 of them didn't think that there would be, that smokable marijuana would be available. The other 500,000 knew exactly what they were voting on and that's what they wanted and that's the will of the people and this board uh, is is overturning that on the advice of the medical community and apparently uh, one person in state government in particular who uh, who stood in the way. If it hadn't been for that, then you know the people would have got what they wanted, and perhaps there would be less of a push for state questions 796 and 797. As it is. The, that has been completely fired up. It's very likely that they're going to get the signatures that they need and they're going to do everything they can to put that on the November ballot. And certainly that is going to be tremendously helpful to us to have a similar kind of turnout as on June 26th on November 6th. Uh, that will benefit us tremendously uh, and it will benefit the state tremendously as uh, those things, you know, if June 26th is any indicator, they're likely to pass. Yeah. Ms. Longhorn, your thoughts when you saw what the, the Board of Health did this week? I was infuriated. Uh, I was just asked about that earlier today, as a matter of fact, and I have largely refrained from public comment on it because there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that spent days, weeks, months of work in order to get this passed, to put a good piece of legislation, a good 
uh, question in front of the people that was easy to comprehend and that encompassed all of the best aspects of the best practices that we've seen around the nation. They put together a nearly perfect piece of legislation, put it in front of the people, and it wasn't a minor margin that passed it. You know, it's, there was a 14% split between those that wished for it and those that didn't. And they sent a clear message to the state capitol with very clear expectations, almost written out line by line within the state question that said, this is what we want to pass. Um, even if those 7,000 people did not understand that smokable was going to be on there, that doesn't change the fact that the people of the state of Oklahoma made their wishes explicitly clear. The people sitting in state power are incumbent to absolutely follow those as closely to the letter as possible within the stricture of the regulations that currently exist. If regulations need to be changed, they need to be changed, but that needs to come later on and it has to happen through legislation who are also being elected to represent the people in their districts. So to have this body of nine people sit there and completely butcher what was overwhelmingly passed by the people is unconscionable. And for Mary Fallon to turn around and sign it without even hesitating or making any public statement on it whatsoever, it's an impeachable offense. It is a direct contradiction of what she was put in office to do and what those nine people were put in the health department to do. Um, they have one function, and that's to serve the individual liberty and the will of the people, and they all failed horribly. Yeah. yeah, well, you're right. I mean, there's already been a lot of backlash to that issue. Like I said, this is the day of recording this, and just a few days after that board meeting, we're already seeing multiple lawsuits filed. Uh, I did want to say a couple of the other things about 788. One of the things that I'm seeing now is that people who were against it are now saying that the will of the people has been expressed and it's been thwarted. Uh, so even people who were against it are upset that this was done. It's not j still the one side against the other. Yeah, for some, I, I think, I mean, I have seen some of that, you know, that chatter too. I mean, for some, this was, this is no longer a medical marijuana issue. This is a, you know, are you going to follow the will of the voters uh, yes. issue on this? Well, as we wrap up this conversation, I want to ask you this because you, you both are, um, you know, appreciate you coming, kind of not just sharing your own perspectives, but kind of introducing the Libertarian Party to, like I said, what I imagine is maybe a lot of viewers who, who aren't too familiar. But you guys are competing against each other on the same ballot. Uh, you'll appear on the, on the runoff in, in August. Um, as, we, as we wrap up here, and uh, Mr. Powell, we'll start with you. Give me, I mean, how, where do you, why do you feel like you're the best Libertarian candidate on the ballot? Um, as, you're, as you're talking to Libertarian voters and, and, and trying to earn their vote, uh, you know, why, do you, why do you feel like you should be the party's nominee? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved with the party a long time. I've been a party officer uh, in more than one uh, position. I've been a candidate and had considerable success. I got 49%, almost 49% on June 26th. I got 89,000 votes for Oklahoma County Clerk in uh, 2016, which uh, beat Gary Johnson's statewide total. Uh, so. You know, I, I have that experience and that, uh, that track record that people can look at. Uh, you know, we haven't elected anybody in the state yet, so that's, you know, that's as, as good as it gets right now. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that uh, the voters know who we are so that uh, they can go out to the runoff on August 28th and, and get this thing done. Yeah. Mr. Longhorn, same question to you. You're competing for libertarian votes on this runoff. Uh, why you? Well, I don't actually believe that we are actually competing for libertarian votes. Libertarians make up, you know, 
less than 1% of the vote electorate in Oklahoma. Um, yes, that's who is going to be voting in the runoff, and I advocated for that. There's a lot of people that you know, feel it's ironic that all these independents are saying, well, I would have voted for you when I advocated against it. But it was like you were saying, there are a lot of people that still don't understand the libertarian ideals. Um, they don't know exactly what we stand for or where we're going to fall on any given issue. And it, to me, it's been much more important that we talk to the population at large. You know, I've been working with the 788 crowd. I've been working with the Second Amendment Association crowd. I'm the only candidate left in the election with an A rating with the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association. Uh, I've been building coalitions uh, between the traditional right and left from the very beginning, and I haven't done any internal politicking to this point. Clearly, in order for me to be able to catch Chris, I'm going to have to. Uh, but I believe that our mission, both of us collectively, is that we do reintroduce Oklahoma to the ideas and principles of liberty, which they already have in their core. They just haven't had an outlet to express it yet. And the most important thing that either one of us can do going forward is making sure that we are talking to the 3.9 million Oklahomans that are out there and telling them, hey, you have an option that actually represents your values and what you're looking for. And through being able to do that, that's going to lead to more growth for the party. It's going to lead to a happier Oklahoma and a more successful Oklahoma government in the long run. So I would just suggest that if they believe that that outreach is what's more important, then I would be the candidate they should choose. Yeah. Well, Chris Powell and uh, Rex Lawhorn, thank you so much for, for your time coming in the studio today. Good luck on the campaign trail on that uh, August 28th runoff. Uh, each party has, well, the Democrats have their nominee, the Republicans have a runoff, and so does the, the Libertarian Party uh, their first year on the uh, governor ballot here in Oklahoma. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again next Friday.